Felicity Graham, what's your special news before we start the show? Well, remember, I've been saying for a couple of episodes now. Yes. Merch is on its way. Yes. It's here. Okay, so we're selling merch now. We Official are selling merch now. Wigs Official merchandise. Wigs merch. What have we got? Wigs pins. Yep. For your lapel, yes. For your jacket, for your t-shirt, yep. They are selling online on our webpage. Yeah, I'll give the address right now. Give if you the go address. To, here we go. Diamantina.com.au forward slash the wigs. Awesome. And then jump onto our Facebook and our Twitter. You'll get the links to buy some lapels there as well. Yeah, and all proceeds going to making the show even better. Yes. Thank you for adding that in. This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this case. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. In this, the last episode of Season 3, the Whigs kick off with a discussion about an important new prisoner rights case. Basam Hamzi is a convicted murderer who was classed by prison officials as a dangerous inmate. Regulations made by the state government that interfered with his right to legal representation were recently struck down by the New South Wales Court of Appeal. The case turned on statutory interpretation of the prison regulations, an analysis of the power to make certain internal prison rules, and the principle of legality, which was used by the Court of Appeal to overturn the decision of the Supreme Court judge who had held the regulations and rules to be valid. Secondly, the Whigs discussed two very recent decisions of the High Court dealing with the question of when is a worker an employee as opposed to a self-employed independent contractor. The decision overturned earlier authority and placed new primacy on the express terms of work contracts negotiated between generally unequal parties. Lastly, listeners will hear a discussion of a failed prosecution under the new cartel conduct provisions that attempt to stop business colluding to distort the market. And of course, stick around for fun things. Welcome to the Whigs. It is the season finale of the Whigs. Uh, I forget what season we're up to but it's season three. three of course it is i don't forget it all i don't forget these things welcome aboard wigs it's great to have you in the room again emmanuel kukasharian it's great to be here in the autumn season yeah it is it is yeah absolutely mr stephen lawrence how are you uh, doing sir mate i'm really good it's good to be here good to be in sydney great good to have Blue you here this morning Fel- the great felicity graham jim Minns. wigs great to be with you isn't it great yeah. that feeling the electricity's back in the room you yeah. can feel it Got a lot to talk about, a lot of legality. Going to kick it off with Felicity Graham tonight for a change. What's on the cards? Tonight we're talking about the rights of certain prisoners to basically have access to a lawyer of their choice. That's sort of the main issue that it comes down to. I'm going to talk particularly about this recent case of Bassam Hamzi and the Commissioner of Corrective Services, New South Wales which was just handed down a few days ago by the New South Wales Court of Appeal. So why is that uh, such a familiar name? Look, he um, is a prisoner serving a term of imprisonment um, in Goulburn Correctional Centre in what's sometimes called the Supermax section or um, sort of section of the jail for certain prisoners who have a classification, um, in his case, a classification of being an extreme high-risk restricted inmate. And that classification is kind of really central to then what this case was about and um, the flow-on consequences of how that restricted his access to um, a lawyer of his own choice. 
And well, so was he a famous accused in a case? Was he like in Brothers for Life or something? Is that yeah. The... I think he ran it. Or yeah, he, he ran it a murder, from... isn't he? Is that the guy? The first headline on my phone is Brothers for Life Founders Life of Crime. Yeah. So that's what he was alleged to have done. Yeah, and he um, at various times has also been convicted or alleged to have committed offences whilst in custody yeah, as well. Okay. And so that is part of the context of his classification as an extreme high-risk restricted inmate. I love the I love the listing of the, the extreme high-risk restricted. You know, I yeah. think so. Oh, there's various serious. different kind of yeah. strata. Um, yeah, a lot of people from the hierarchy the, of classification. So yeah, a lot of people from the union that I work at the PSA, which represents prison officers. Are probably responsible for a lot of that categorization. Mm. I'm sad uh, there's no super duper max. I think they missed out mm. an opportunity super there. Just wait. I think. I think the. Uh, I think the, that would send chills through yeah. the criminal milieu. <laughs> yeah, would. Can I, Flick, You'll end up in super duper max, right? <laughs> Flick, I, I think. I just want to mention that we had an audience question about this because oh, we did. The, the questioner will be devastated if we don't yeah. play it. So I've got it here. And she I'll, will be. Caitlin here, long-time listener, first-time caller. I'm interested in your take on the decision of the Court of Appeal of New South Wales in Hamsey and the Commissioner of Corrective Services. The judgment seems to have invalidated some aspects of the rules around access to lawyers for Supermax prisoners. So what was the court's reasoning and what does it mean for those inmates? Ooh. It's a big ask, though, isn't it? Mm. So that was what the case was, the case was about, <laughs> access to a lawyer, not about... So he was... Yeah, so... Like an let admin me just, situation. Yeah, let's just sort of wind back a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it's not a criminal case. Oh, okay. Mm. Yep. Mm. So he was designated by the commissioner as this extreme high-risk restricted inmate, and that can happen in circumstances where the commissioner is of the opinion that the inmate constitutes an extreme danger to other people or an extreme threat to the good order and security, and there's a risk that the inmate may engage in or incite other persons to engage in activities that constitute a serious threat to the peace, order or good government of the state or any other place. That classification wasn't being challenged. The rules that were then applied to him as a result of that classification were what was challenged. And the key issues in the case were really three... Firstly, concerned with whether the commissioner was authorised to refuse to permit visits by lawyers to those inmates for any reason. Secondly... For any reason? Yeah. Mm. Secondly, and and there were some other issues to do with whether criminal record checks could be done on Uh, lawyers and things as well. Who's that's the first issue. So is that what the policy says, for any reason? Yeah. But who's That's the, the regulation? The regulation who's writing the regulation? The prison, the, the Supermax, Goulburn? Uh, well, it's a regulation, so it'd be drafted by the legislative drafters, but presumably on policy advice from, yeah, I don't know, Department of Justice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's the first issue. We'll come back to that. Okay. Second For any issue reason. Jesus. Mm. is concerned with the practice of randomly monitoring telephone calls made by extreme high-risk restricted inmates, which was called dropping in, where... You'd be on a phone call with your lawyer or with anyone else and unbeknownst to you, at any time throughout that conversation, a corrective services officer would listen in to the conversation for an unspecified period of time, 
to determine two things. One, whether you were speaking in English or not, or whether the participants to the call were speaking in English or not, or another approved language, or um, rather and whether the person on the other end of the line was an approved person. So how long do you stay on the line to verify the the second wing? Yeah, so that's a good question and Mm. that's something we'll come to. Right, privileged, right. Right. And then the third issue um, was a challenge based on the Racial Discrimination Act, the Federal Act, and an argument by Mr Hamsey that particular parts of the regulation which purported to require most communications by inmates with that classification to be in English were inconsistent with the provisions of the Racial Discrimination Act. That part of the case um, he was unsuccessful on. And oh. We can kind of get to that if we have time. But sure. I think the first two issues are sort of the most interesting. And um, So was the Racial Discrimination Act point around the use of language, approved language? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yep. Okay, so... And let- he j- sorry, but... Before you start, okay, before we get into the, the... He submitted all this himself. So, yeah, sort of. He had some lawyers earlier on. He brought um, some litigation in the Supreme Court and Justice Bellew heard the case at first instance and he was represented by lawyers at that stage of the proceedings. Mm. But then he lost there and... Um, brought a case in the Court of Appeal himself. <laughs> and because rep- he had the material there. Himself. He had the material um, from the first instance. And did very well. Right. The, the, the court leaving. complimented his <laughs> submission, saying that um, the hearing in this court occupied two days with helpful submissions from Mr. <laughs> Harmsey himself. <laughs> Which is funny because like lawyers like to read the comments from judges describing their submissions as sort of helpful or concise or something. And it's not a code, but it's something that judges do to be nice, I think, like to mm. lawyers often. So mm. it's quite funny to read them sort of going out of, out of their way to be nice to Mr. Harmsey. In a two-day <laughs> court of appeal hearing, that's that's not nothing. But also he the, the court appointed um, two, at, well, an amicus curiae, um, and there was two counsel appeared essentially as amicus and um can you just explain to me friend what... of the court right yes someone to assist the court thank you who's not a, like a party or representing a party gotcha but just appointed to assist on a legal issue okay and very interestingly i think fleet's going to have an interview with one mm, of them. so Catherine gleason and melita parker appeared amicus and there's going to be a an extra episode coming up soon to complement this one i'm going to be interviewing melita parker about the hearing and the ins and outs of it Cool. So that'll be great. All right, so let's go and look at this issue, the first issue to do with access to a lawyer. So the court was concerned with a particular clause of a regulation, the Crimes Administration of Sentences regulation, which conferred on the commissioner a power to refuse a visitor to an extreme high-risk restricted inmate um, on the basis of a criminal record check or for any other reason. <laughs> okay. For any other reason. Or mm. for any other reason. Yep. Well, okay. Why do you need two, <laughs> two 
two limbs there. Surely it should say for any other reason that relates to the order and sort of proper administration of the prison or something at least. It shouldn't be so open-ended, should it? Sure. So um, that was challenged um, in terms of it being invalid. As ultra-virus the act. Yes. Mm. And... The starting point for that sort of was a bit of an analysis around how you could interfere with certain rights that were seen to be um, vested in prisoners unless there was by um, express intention or necessary implication that they had been abrogated. They had been cancelled out. Mm. And I really recommend people to have a read of the judgment because it's super fascinating about the rights of prisoners throughout history and looking at, for example, in New South Wales, the fact that it was only in the 1980s that prisoners lost the quality of being civilly dead Mm. and having to kind of leave their human rights at the prison gates And then there was a process of some legislative reform and some interpretation by the courts that recognised that prisoners still had civil rights, uh, even though they were confined to imprisonment. And so, for example, Mr Harmsey could only bring this case, a civil case, in court um, because he is now recognised to be someone who still persistently Mm. has civil rights despite being a convicted prisoner. There's still something in the Felons Act there about is. prisoners in So cases, there's it? a leave provision. A leave provision. Yeah, I've come across that before. Yeah, but it's been um, interpreted to, yeah. to be... To not apply to judicial review. N- one, not apply yeah. to judicial review, and two, um, that the civil rights of prisoners should be sort of given a presumption mm. of being recognised. And so access to the courts is an important civil right. So basically the Court of Appeal said, look, the criminal record check, it just required people to fill out a form to identify themselves, provide some identification, then there was a check performed. That um, is legitimate in the context of the need to uh, control the good governance of a prison, including especially um, these high-risk... Bad hombres coming to visit. ...classification inmates. Is that sure. to ask for the check or to refuse a visit pu- purely on the basis of a criminal record? Because to... I would have thought the latter is a bit potentially unreasonable, right? Because some of these people might not have many family and associates and friends who don't have criminal records. So this is just about lawyers and whether it's... Oh, that regulation only applies to lawyers. No, it doesn't. But the Court of Appeals analysis of it and consideration of it was just concerned with the right to have a lawyer of your choice. Who presumably wouldn't have a criminal record. Yeah, well, they said, look, that's not necessarily the case. There is some criminal, yeah, there is some. And, you know, things might have either slipped through the cracks because even though lawyers have an obligation to notify, Mm. they might not have. uh, And even though they might have a criminal record, they might be subject to restricted practising mm. certificate and still be on the the book. So it's legitimate to allow them to do that. But to the extent that the regulation says, or for any other reason, 
that should be read down. That doesn't apply to lawyers. Yeah. The commissioner shouldn't be allowed to refuse. And they they posited this example. They said, well, look, maybe that lawyer might have been successful in acting for the prisoner <laughs> in a case against the state. And the commissioner, according to the regulation as it's written, you know, could just refuse mm. on that basis. But that's... Because not legitimate. I mean, we might have spoken about this before, but there's a special subclass of the lawyer-client relationship that this thing, as you said, Steve, is ultra-virus, goes above and beyond stopping, right? Like there needs to be... There's a privilege there that this regulation is interfering with. Or is yeah, so was that the with? basis of the decision, that the principle of legality kind of reasoning meant that it, it can't interfere in a fundamental right unless it's clearer in its terms? Like, is that what you're getting at, Jim? Yes, because I feel like we haven't addressed that yet. Uh, like, I feel like we, like we need to address, hey, there's a relationship here between a client and a solicitor that goes under privilege mm. that this thing, which is obviously designed to stop criminal enterprise from continuing beyond the bars, beyond mm. jail, is interfering with. Mm. Yeah, so they looked at the interplay between how you construe the regulation and its validity and sort of that there's this tension that you should construe it in a way that's most likely to make it valid, but then also you might need to screw it, construe it in a way that means part of it is invalid and you have to sort of excise it. Um, and they basically adopted this approach that said the right to legal representation, the right to a lawyer of your choice can't be curtailed without express words or necessary implication. And it's on the state to show that that's how you should construe it or that's that has been achieved and mm. they haven't. Mm. So the regulation doesn't operate in the context of a legal practitioner who's seeking to access a prisoner. Like that power can't be used to interfere in that relationship. That's right. Yeah. I, I it's thought... more than that. It's more. Yeah. It goes to the power, the regulation-making power, is not to be construed to authorise mm. the making of a regulation that materially cuts down that the right that. to the lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. So, I would have thought there might also be an argument that to the extent it purports to create a power that can be exercised for any reason that that qualifier for any reason might also make it ultra-virus the act. Because how do you tether the range of matters that would fall under the rubric of for any reason with the scope and purpose of the act? Like, doesn't it bring in this power that can be exercised for all sorts of capricious reasons that have nothing to do with the purposes of the act? Mm. Like the commissioner's having a bad day. How is that? How is that supported by the Act as a reason to exercise a power? Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, here we are. Yeah. I mean, so that was that limb that, 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 that they drew on to stop Hamzi access to his lawyer, right? Mm. For any reason. We, we, did they go into specifics uh, in, in the first instance about we believe that there is some sort of nefarious activity here that we want to put the kibosh on, hence... Limb two is invoked, or, or what, what was the reasoning? So, the legal issues that were being discussed in the Court of Appeal and determined there were really just that 
questions of law and they weren't really delving into the facts of the matter. There was some evidence that um, certain, I think, three solicitors that Harmsy had wanted uh, to represent him had refused to undergo a criminal record check and there were there was also some evidence about um, the phone call issue and how many phone calls had been terminated as a result of drop-ins, the monitoring by the corrective services. But mostly it was to do with kind of really looking at the legal tests and whether or not these provisions were valid, accepting that they did interfere with his right to have privileged conversations and to engage a lawyer of his own choice. It was interesting to look at the reasons of the primary judge, Justice Bellew, as well, because one of the things that the the respondent state parties really emphasised is that, oh, look, courts don't really know about how difficult it is to manage prisons and courts don't really know enough about the details of security issues and things that come up and things that we have to do in prisons and you should just step out of it and let us run the prisons in the way that we want to. Mm-hmm. And... The primary judge, I think, really did engage in a process of deferring to the prison authorities. Oh, okay. And accepting this principle or sort of approach that legislation regulating prisons should ordinarily be interpreted so as to give full scope to the power of correctional authorities to carry out tasks of prison administration and management without undue influence from the courts. And kind of that was a real feature of Justice Bellew's focus in terms of finding that these provisions were valid. Okay. Um, Which you can sort of understand to the extent the court might be involved in judicial review proceedings about operational decisions, for example, or someone try to get some sort of injunction in relation to the administration of the prison. But I don't know how that, that kind of deference idea appropriately feeds into a statutory construction sort of argument about power. Mm, and also I think... Um, because the parliament can just reenact it in a clear way, right? Like if you accept the principle of legality and you accept that it's not clear in these respects, then it's just over to them to fix it, isn't it? Mm, I think the court was balancing things that are pulling in different directions. So on the one hand, they're sort of acknowledging the scope or the need for prison authorities to be able to operate within that environment and control the custodial environment with certain rules and so on. But on the other hand, really emphasise that a convicted prisoner, in spite of his or her imprisonment, retains all civil rights which are not taken away um, expressly or by necessary implication. And that was something that had been... um, expressed under English law and then was also adopted into New South Wales law. Just going back to your question, Stephen, about the the regulation being so broad, the regulation-making power in the Crimes Admin of Sentences Act 99 is so broad as to say the Governor may make regulations not inconsistent with the Act for or with respect to any matter uh, that by this Act is required or permitted to be prescribed or that is necessary or convenient for carrying out or giving effect to the Act. So 
in those circumstances, that's about a broad as power, ground of power you can get for making regulations. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a broad formulation, but I wonder whether that takes them beyond something that has to relate in a rational way to the purposes of the Act. Well, I think controlling who enters a prison would rationally relate to the purposes of the Act. It if could, but not for an irrational, yeah, but, extraneous purpose, right? Yeah, but they make the point that that's subject to judicial review. So I you, suppose that's you, right. You could review that if yeah. it's irrational. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's probably right, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So you stand by the regulation as it, as it, as it was drafted? I think, I think that it's not unreasonable to give governors of prisons the power to control who enters and who doesn't enter. Whether or not you do it in a regulation in those terms is a matter of distaste to me, but not something that I'm sort of against, except the use to, say, stop lawyers is something that that would be too far for, and that's what the court has held. Mm, mm, mm. Okay, so let's go to the second issue, which was this drop-in policy. So the evidence on that was that the commissioner permits the um, the plaintiff, Mr Harmsey, to make telephone calls to lawyers only if they've first been approved as legal contacts on the offender telephone system, the OTS. Um, There were two approved legal contacts for the plaintiff to access on the OTS. Corrective service officers monitor OTS calls made by the plaintiff. And the corrective services policy is that monitoring officers will listen to a call briefly and randomly if in that time the listening officer determines that the call is not with the approved recipient or is not being conducted in English or another approved language, the call will be disconnected. The making of that determination may in some cases involve the exercise of an evaluative judgment having regard to the circumstances of the OTS call. And then there were some more details in an affidavit about the manner in which they did the monitoring. OTS calls with extreme high-risk Restricted inmates are monitored by corrective services officers to ensure that they are in English and are with approved contacts. In order to monitor calls without breaching inmate privilege or confidentiality, is the practice it is the practice of corrective services that officers periodically quote drop in to the line, listen for only long enough to check that English is being spoken and that the caller is with the approved recipient, and then disconnect. No records are made of anything heard during a drop in unless the call is not in English or not with an approved person. And then there was another document that was in evidence, which was a document that was provided to inmates, information for extreme high-risk restricted inmates, and it described the policy in that document. Which I thought all prison calls got recorded. Is that not right? Not if it's with a legal representative. Oh, okay, so this policy is only in respect to legal representatives, is it? No. This is for super, super duper max. Extreme high risk yeah. restricted inmates, yeah. whoever they were on the phone call with. And applies to all of their approved telephone contacts. That's right, yeah. including their lawyers. Yeah. Um, so, and, and then that was the kind of contest whether or not that was valid, yeah. a valid policy that could be supported by the, um, the regime in place. So the information that they were given about this policy, um, no telephone calls or AVL access, that's audio-visual link access, with the exception of calls to the Ombudsman, ICAC or other exempt body will be permitted unless approved by the Commissioner or Delegate. All approved calls will be monitored. 
with the exceptions of calls to an exempt body or your legal representative. The conversation, including legal calls, must be in English or another language approved by the commissioner or delegate. Corrective services staff may re-verify the legitimacy of the call at various intervals throughout the duration of the call or AVL link to your legal representative by momentarily dropping in on the conversation. And then they describe what dropping in means and go on. And it was kind of really interesting. Some of the things, the submissions that Mr. Harmsy made was, look, there's the issue of privilege and um, confidentiality and the expectations that a prisoner has in terms of speaking to their lawyer that that relationship and conversation is protected. But he also made another submission which I thought was quite interesting, which was to say that it's going to have a chilling effect on prisoners in this category because when they are on the phone to their lawyer, knowing that corrective services could be listening literally at any time and that there's no warning or um, indication to the participants in the call that they are being listened to, that 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 will have a chilling effect and that inmates in that situation will be guarded in what they want to say to their lawyers in those circumstances. Mm. He's made some pretty good submissions, hasn't he? Made really good submissions. Obviously, smart guy. Yeah, and the amicus um, arguments were really good on this point as well. I think because they said, "Look, the practical effect of this monitoring will be that interception could continue for quite some time until the identity of the recipient of the call could be confirmed, and it was established that both parties were speaking in English." A dropping could occur while an inmate was giving instructions to a lawyer such that the officer would be listening to privileged communications until the lawyer next spoke and their compliance with the conditions of the rules could be confirmed. So, yeah, there's quite an interesting analysis of what this really means in practice if this is permitted to occur. And the court on that basically held for Mr Harmsey. He succeeded on that ground also. So it was found that there was no source of power that authorised the drop-in policy insofar as it applied to telephone conversations between an extreme high-risk restricted inmate and his or her lawyer. And so that that policy can no longer stand in respect of those inmates and the conversations are to be protected and and not dropped in on. So from now on, there are no more drop-ins. There thanks shouldn't to be. This. Yeah, there shouldn't be any uh, any. Prog- not that we would know. Well, there hasn't mm. been. A, interestingly, the relief was a declaration and not prohibition. Uh, uh-huh. And they they sort of said, well, you know, we expect where the government we, we expect the government to comply. Mm. Um, but uh, the declaration would have the effect of limiting the use of those things uh, anyway. Was there a ruling on the other issue about? About criminal record checks and access? Yeah, that was fine. That was, was held to be legitimate. Okay. Yeah. One of the interesting things that I found in, I think, Justice Leeming's judgment was that the respondents had basically said about the principle of legality. So the, the principle of legality, I don't know if we've explained it yet, but essentially it's the idea that if you've got these fundamental rights, if Parliament wants to take them away from you, they have to damn well say so. Um, really, and th- th- there's a there's a quote from Lee and the Crime Commission 2013 High Court of Australia um, that the that the respondents relied on that said 
the principle at most can have a limited application to the construction of legislation which has amongst its objects the abrogation or curtailment of a particular right, uh, freedom or immunity and so on. And they, they sort of said, well, that's what the High Court said. And here we've got this legislation that's about controlling prisoners. So it's on the basis of that, it's got a limited application. And what Justice Leeming pointed out is, um, well, he says, I, I do not agree with this submission. The issue is the construction of legislation which is directed to the curtailment of a right to physical liberty, and in particular whether that regime necessarily curtails a different right, yeah. namely the right to an inmate's chosen lawyer. Like you can be locked up and still have other rights. That's right. That need to be excluded by a clear statement yeah. before they survive. And I, and I think it's an important catch by Justice Leeming, as it were. He, he notes the difference because otherwise it's, well, well, this Act wants to get rid of this. Because this Act gets rid of some of your rights, it gets rid of all of them, which is a massive overreach, I think. Ultra-virus. What does that mean? I don't speak Latin. No. Isn't that uh, just doing admin at the moment? That's Above power, doesn't it? Beyond the power. power. Yeah. Flick How do you speak not Latin, speak Latin? Latin? I said, I said, I said ipsa dixit in the Supreme Court last week, <laughs> and I got pulled up by a judge who said to me that um, that hasn't been invoked Latin, since the thirteenth. Fortunately, I knew what it meant. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's quite an interesting case also, I think, to be a bit reflective <clears throat> about the importance of face-to-face -face communications with a client, particularly an accused. We're all getting, in general life and particularly as lawyers, more used to using various different forms of technology to communicate with each other, obviously the telephone, but video link in various different forms. And there's quite a, I think, emphatic statement of how important face-to-face -face is. Doesn't the act still cover, because, you know, it's, it's about control, you know, and control of communication as well as control of physical presence inside the prison itself. So you're saying there's less likely of a drop-in on a privileged communication if it's held face-to-face, -face, obviously, as opposed to being held electronically. Yeah, well, so... The part of the kind of construction argument relating to the visits issue um, and also to the drop-in issue was there's this provision that says that in the regulation that says that any visit with an extreme high-risk restricted inmate must be held within hearing of a corrective services officer. Mm. And the respondent had to concede that that had to be read down to not mean visits with lawyers mm. because otherwise that would just be um, curtailing the right to privileged communication with a lawyer. So that sounds like a pretty key concession, doesn't it? Yeah. Because once you make that concession, really it kind of flows on. Mm. Uh. Yeah, and because part of the arguments were looking at the interaction between different parts of the regulation, some which concerned a sort of more general statement about an entitlement to visits with a lawyer and others which had these more specific provisions relating to extreme high-risk uh, restricted inmates. So it was sort of... And, and the way that visits or visitors were not necessarily in all provisions specified to either relate to lawyers or just anybody, which could include lawyers. So, yeah, that was, I think, quite an important concession that the, the court said was properly made and 
um, yeah, had those fallen effects. But I think, yeah, 210 of the judgment is just quite an important statement about face-to-face um, communications. When a person faces serious criminal charges, there are many occasions when a face-to-face conference is highly advantageous and close to being practically essential. Mm. It's not merely that a face-to-face conference is apt to be more efficient and less prone to misunderstandings. It's easier to build a relationship of trust and confidence. It's substantially easier to obtain instructions about photographs or audio recordings served as part of the Crown case. Most practitioners would prefer to have a face-to-face conference before advising whether an inmate who pleads not guilty should give evidence. Such so who's advice, the author of this judgment? Leaning. Yeah. Such advice necessarily incorporating an assessment of how a jury will view the inmate's cross-examination, obvious and substan- substantial disadvantage as a company, any form of communication other than face-to-face, even if there were ideal technology and complete privacy, which there is not. So, yeah, I think it's important for us to reflect because Mm. as practitioners, I think we often do things that can be more convenient um, rather than, you know, travelling to Lithgow or the jail in Goulburn or Mm. um, Wellington or Broken Hill or Grafton or wherever the client may be. Uh, and well, the system conspires against you as well, right? Absolutely. Because all those court visits that used to happen don't happen anymore. Like how often, even 10 years ago, were you taking instructions in the police cells or in the court cells in relation maybe to a client who's got multiple matters or whatever or in relation to that matter? There was just a lot more opportunities, right? Mm. Whereas now even it's Even I think different. a few years ago, courts used to be much more facilitative and, for example, make certain orders or issue warrants or withhold the issuing of mm. warrants to return someone to a prison so that lawyers could stay at the courthouse mm. and conference with their client. Don't see that happening as much, I don't yeah. think. Well, I think COVID's a problem. But, I mean, Maybe, arraignments yeah. occurring by AVL, I mean, that just shouldn't happen in no, my view shouldn't. ever. There's just no justification <clears throat> for it ever. I understand during COVID that might have been a necessity, but then on the other hand, why not arraign them at trial? Mm. You can have an indication given and then arraign them at trial. The idea that someone's asked to plead guilty or not guilty and they haven't had a face-to-face with someone is, particularly for indictable matters, just appalling, I mm. think. Um, and hopefully this judgment won't, but hopefully it does lead to more of that happening. So it looks like Hamsey's found a new purpose in life as a prisoner rights litigant. Prisoners Go are entitled to their civil rights. I get it, I get it, I get it. And, that's, <laughs> and hence I gave you 45 minutes to talk but about why that. why shouldn't, why, you know, convicts, you should lose your civil rights, shouldn't you? Or your <laughs> well, assets. Well, the High Court says no. The High Court's done some pretty good stuff on this. Yeah, well. Yeah, I looked at this in my separation of, of powers case. The... Like, mm. they've, they've basically <laughs> found an implied right, you know, for prisoners to vote. Yeah. They've refused, they've struck down this legislation that overly restricts it. So interesting. Yeah, it's good. I mean, they should have the right to vote, surely. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wigs. We are returning with uh, your former excellency, Mr. Stephen Lawrence. He is talking about some industrial matters that went before the High Court, I believe. Were you uh, involved? 
Uh, no, I wasn't involved. Ah, cool. No, no, I've only been involved to the extent of reading the decision. There you go. <laughs> Quite remotely involved. I wasn't involved, involved either. Oh, okay. Very re- remote <laughs> and very Manny. remote. Okay. Stephen, enlighten no, us. No, I did do my honours thesis at university on this exact topic. Oh, yeah. Which is the distinction between independent contractors and employees. Yeah, cool. In um, uh, employment law. What's going on? Yeah, so I'm talking about two new decisions of the High Court of Australia which looked at the really long and complicated sort of legal issue about the distinction between independent contractors and employees. The decisions are ZG Operations and JAMSEC, uh, 2022 HCA2, and Construction, Forestry, Maritime, Mining and Energy Union and Personnel Contracting, uh, 2022 HCA1. First and second decisions of the High Court this year. Yeah, that's right. Yep. And they were argued together last August and judgments were delivered this month. Yeah. So this um, has been a long topic of interest to me because I did my honours thesis on it. Yeah. Fascinating you know, read. At university. Yeah. Which I was actually looking for today and I couldn't find it. Oh, yesterday. I think um, I bought the last copy. It was a cracker. Yeah. It was never published. It wasn't really no, no, sorry, a I'm, great yeah. distinction. Of course. Yeah. I think I got a credit for it. Yeah. yeah. Pass, I reckon. Please, mate, degrees. There you go. Mm. Have you had exams recently, Bingo? Oh, yeah. A week from today. So by the time this goes to where, I'd be, I'll be sitting it, hopefully. What's the topic? Evidence. Ooh, that's a hard one, mate. No, and then admin and then... Uh, mm. anyway, this is fun things. Steve, take it right. away. Unfun so, things. <laughs> the, the issue in both was obviously this important industrial issue of when is a worker a self-employed independent contractor or an employee. Mm. The first one, um, ZG Operations, was about labour hire companies in the construction industry. The second, about truck drivers uh, operating as independent partnerships. Uh, So two truck drivers who'd previously been employed by a company and then were proposed to be let go and told uh, that they could only continue to work for the company if they formed their own formed their own partnership and them and their respective wives started partnerships and then renegotiated with the contract uh, sorry with the company and stayed on as contractors um, but their their work that they did day to day effectively didn't change and they only had one client namely the company they'd previously been employed by that's pretty much right but yeah, you're talking about two people who provided these services, I think, since 1985. Yeah. So I'm not sure whether the kind of scope of the work changed in some way or okay. whatever. But, yeah, they provided these services to the one company mm. who they'd previously been employees of mm. um, and were required in order to continue the work to form these partnerships with their wives and then basically sort of render invoices on behalf of the partnerships rather than being... Um, uh, employed by the company. And so what were the events in respect of the two cases that caused the litigation? Like, was the contract not renewed with the truck drivers? Yeah, it was basically the conclusion of their relations with the companies and then them seeking various statutory entitlements that they would have been owed if they were employees. Um, And that's why this is such a huge issue in Australia because many entitlements under law, such as long service leave, um, award wages and so on, hang on whether a person is a contractor or an employee. Mm. Um, Though if one looks over the last two centuries, according to Justice Gagler, most of the cases come from it around the distinction or around 
the issue of vicarious liability. The distinction between independent contractor and employee. So yeah. you're, So you're an employee of Woolworths and you assault someone. Yeah. And is Woolworths vicarious yeah, liable that's right. for that or not? Yeah. Or you know you. Or you're yeah, an independent you, contractor. Yeah. So if you're an, if, if you're doing road work, say for RMS, then depending on the legal relationship between you and RMS, RMS may be liable or not mm. in tort for negligence you mm. do, for example. Mm. Yeah. So Justice Gagler makes the point that while now it's about statutory entitlements, it's often been about vicarious liability, mm. um, and it's long been the case that. You know, companies that are substantively employers have avoided these liabilities and avoided these entitlements through these sort of often sham arrangements, which is why it's such an important issue generally. So what the two decisions do is essentially change the test to be applied by courts and tribunals in determining who is an employee from the previous approach, which basically said you look at all the circumstances you look at uh, the terms of the contract, you look at uh, the nature of the work done, you look at the degree of control, you look at factors such as who provides any tools necessary to do the work and so forth. And after assessing all the factors, you essentially characterise it as an independent contractor, as a relationship of employer-employee. And that was the old test. Yeah, that's the old test. Oh, okay. Okay. And is it based, you you look at the contract as well? Is is there not a contract in some cases? Is that where where there's a big... uh... That's where we're going. Yes, that's where we're going. That's basically the issue. So they've changed it to an approach where the terms of the contract have primacy, but not in terms of the label given by the contract, but its actual terms. Um, and for example, the uh, the case involved in the CFMU that will come to that contract expressly labelled uh, the worker as an independent contractor, but the High Court found that he was in That's fact that he was in fact an employee. Mm. Yeah, so the label given is not determinative, but the substance of the terms is now determinative. <clears throat> Whereas um, with the old test, the contract was just one of many factors that you looked at. Okay, <clears throat> right, right, right. So this distinction has often been talked about in terms of whether in substance is there a relationship of service, so like an employer-employee relationship, or is it a contract struck to provide services? And the answer now is um, if the contract provides for services, not service, then unless the contract is invalid varied by statute or has been amended by conduct, then it's not an employment relationship. Um, so the rights and issue in these cases, as I said, this is often an issue of statutory rights, were um, in the CFMEU case, uh, the payment of ward wages um, and penalties for not paying them. And in the other case involving the truck drivers, issues around long service and superannuation which, as you can imagine, uh, they'd worked for them since 1985, so we're probably talking about a huge amount of money. Mm. So, yeah, really important social and social and economic issues at stake. So, yeah, turning to the cases, uh, the first one, uh, CFMU and personnel contracting, the Chief Justice and Justices Keane and Edom gave a joint judgment, and Gordon and Stewart Justices agreed with them on the main issues and orders. Um 
Yeah, so the person in question who was the litigant was um, a backpacker who had come to Australia, worked for a fairly brief period, about six months, I think, as an employee of a labour hire company. Um, He was 22 years old uh, from the UK on a working holiday. He um, says, quote, seeking a source of income and with limited prior work experience as a part-time bricklayer and in hospitality, he obtained a white card, which enabled him to work on construction sites. Uh, He contacted Construct and attended an interview indicated he was prepared to do any construction work and available to start immediately. He confirmed, as was required, that he owned a hard hat, some steel-cut boots and high-vis clothing. Having purchased them for $100, he was offered a role and presented with paperwork and signed a document called an Administrative Services Agreement, which described him as a self-employed contractor and then worked uh, for a company called Hanson's and worked at that company for the entire six-month period. So was he found to be an employee of Hanson or an employee employee of Construct? He was found to be an employee of Construct, mm. yeah. <clears throat> um, worked under the supervision of Hanson's supervisors, uh, but he was paid by Construct. Um, worked for them for six months, basic labouring tasks and so forth. Uh, says in the judgment, he's not an entrepreneur nor a skilled artisan. He's paid by the hour and when at work, he's told what to do and how to do it. So that's, that's important, contract. is it, that you, you're given Oh, no, that's in the judgment. Yeah, but was, was that in the contract that he was told what to do? Or was no, that, well... Or was that the other evidence? I think ultimately it was held that it was, but I think there was evidence as well. Right. Yeah. As to the nature of what he did every yeah, day and who right. told him what to do and but, so on. Mm. So am I understanding it right? If, there, if he was doing that every day, <clears throat> but the contract made no reference to it, then the fact he was doing it every day is now... Not relevant. That's pretty much right, unless the contract has been varied by conduct, right. which involves another sort of different test and was not argued for in this case. So, and I gather is like fairly hard to establish, perhaps. So is this in the long term then harmful to workers? I think so, yeah. Yeah, mm. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, in this case, it was helpful to the worker in question. And I know the CFMEU is lining up to get compensation for her you know, a whole range of people. Mm. <clears throat> but reading some of the employer law firm sort of guidance on this case, what they're basically advising people now to do, um, and this would be the companies they're advising, is to basically create very prescriptive contracts that make it very clear that it's not an employer-employee relationship and uh, the substance of the term should reflect that. And you can just imagine a situation where you have contracts that are quite different to the reality, mm. uh, but there won't necessarily be much much evidence of the reality. And then unless you can argue variation by conduct, then you're going to lose on this issue. Mm. So I think superficially the outcome of the first case seems to assist the worker, but it's definitely this approach of putting more primacy on express contract terms. And the sort of reasoning of the High Court makes sense in the sense that what they've said is, you know, if you look at the Fair Work Act and you look at the definition of employee, it talks about an employee at common law. Mm. So the whole legislation is hung off these common law concepts. So it kind of makes sense that you would give primacy to the contract terms because as a matter of common law, 
um, it's a contract issue. Yeah. So is there there that relationship? The contract written in those prescriptive terms is not just tantamount to allowing the label to be determinative? Because if the label is just what's written in the contract but doesn't actually reflect the reality, then... Well, you couldn't, for example, if you had terms in the contract that expressly permitted you to control a lot of what the worker was doing, then your label in there that they were a contractor would be irrelevant. I know, but if your terms of your contract purports to say that the situation is that you don't control a lot of what the worker is doing, but in fact you do... That's exactly right. That's the problem. Then... Yeah, I mean, just on the issue of labels. Effectively, you're just writing a contract as a label. Yeah, that's yeah. A, well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. except except the label I mean? is yeah. not going to be determinative. No, I know, yeah. but the terms which give effect to the label. Totally, the contract then, becomes the label. I think is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, so the High Court directly addressed the label issue, which obviously is just one part of it. But they say to say, and this is in the plurality judgment. So they say, to say that the legal character of a relationship between persons is to be determined by the rights and obligations which are established by the party's written contract is distinctly not to say that the label which the parties may have chosen to describe their relationship is determinative of or even relevant to that characterisation. Then they go on to say, as a matter of principle, it is difficult to see how the expression by the parties of their opinion as to the character of their relationship can assist the court whose task it is to characterise their relationship by reference to their rights and duties. So, yeah, you can't say this is a contract between, you know, a contractor and an independent contractor, but you can set out the express terms uh, in a way that is going to mean that excluding later conduct, except in the instance of express variation through conduct that it's that sort of relationship. Mm. Did you ever come across in your thesis or in uh, research for this Trident and McNeese brothers? I think that's one of the ones that's been overturned by this, maybe. Has it? I think so. So in that situation, if I can enlighten you, um, Trident, uh, McNeese brothers were a construction company that used independent third-party contractors on a building site who got hurt on the job. Mm. And they sued their... uh, uh, They tried to claim... Insurance, uh, which were they were covered under, which McNeese Brothers used Trident Insurance and Insurance Company to cover the work site, and Trident Insurance said, "Well, no, these guys are independent third third party contractors. We're not covering them because the, our our agreement was with you. Hmm. There's no privity the, to the contract." And they ended up winning in the High Court. The 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 workers were covered, yeah, under that. So yeah. you're saying that that is now overturned. Yeah, I don't know if that case, because the High Court in this judgment says that the High Court had never looked at this particular issue or there was no authority to support the multifactorial approach. So that case might have turned on different issues, perhaps. Okay, yeah, maybe. Um, I'm pretty sure this was the first time the High Court had looked at this issue about whether the express terms of the contract essentially determine the nature of the relationship. Okay, that's Yeah, funny. putting aside the issue of variation by conduct, which I think is a pretty large one, but, mm. yeah, quite a different one. It's interesting what they said about casual employment as well because they said it should also be said that the primary judge erred in concluding that the circumstances that Mr McCourt was free to accept or reject any offer of work and that he was not precluded from working for others were factors which contraindicated a characterisation of his relationship with Construct as one of employment. 
They said it's commonplace that casual employees do not work exclusively for one employer. Uh, in addition, Mr McCourt's right pursuant to um, the agreement to accept or reject any offer of work from a builder must be understood subject to his promise to construct to supply labour for the duration required by Hanson. His right to reject an offer of work was exercisable at the level of an overall engagement with Hanson rather than on the basis of a new engagement each day. So I think that's sort of quite helpful, isn't it, to workers in Mm. the sense that just because you might be doing lots of different jobs doesn't mean that you're not an employee in respect of any particular relationship. Yeah, which, but that's not that surprising, is it, in the sense that that's kind of the nature of casual employment, right? Yeah, exactly. But the primary judge got it wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're an employer, you want to be able to tell your employees what to do and you ideally don't want them to be employees so that you can get out of... Liability. Paying them mm. all, their, all the bangs and whistles that go with it, right? So for a unionised workforce or a heavily unionised workforce, they're going to be okay because they're going to, in, F, in essence, they're, they're going to have to put into their contracts the things that allow them to tell people what to do and so they will be classed as employees. But for people who are in non-unionised areas, they're just going to end up with those contracts that are super light on, aren't they? Mm. That, and they're just going to be told what to do as a matter of practice. Yeah, and the bargaining position is quite unequal. Yeah. You know? So it's not, you know, this kind of true contract in reality. It's sort of just people signing bits of paper mm. and the, not having a good bargaining position. Is the owner-driver or the Uber relationship factor into this? Did any of those scenarios come up or no one's really complained about that? Yeah, I mean, that's a sort of completely different company that wasn't, you know, at issue in this stuff. But there's been other litigation around Uber, Uber and drive. stuff. Yeah, there has, about yeah. About whether they're contractors or not. Well, mm-hmm. especially around the death of Uber drivers and, and yeah. there's a lot of delivery drivers who were killed in the last two years and who was liable in that respect as well. Yeah. Mm. I mean, getting back to the union point, I think the other strength of unionised workplaces is stopping employers in, embarking on these arrangements if they can, you know. Oh, man. And coming, just going back to the Uber thing. So, like, there's really complicated questions that arise there. For example, the agreement with Uber might have certain things in it, but then the practical reality of how the app forces you to behave like an employee mm. may be very, very different to that. So, that that's very interesting. Who yeah, knows where it, is. That lands. it is. And I don't know how this case interacts with, because there's been litigation around Uber. Yeah. Um, so, the correct test... It's probably worth just stating exactly what they said is the test. Where the parties have comprehensively committed the terms of their relationship to a written contract, the validity of which is not in dispute, the characterisation of their relationship as one of employment or otherwise proceeds by reference to the rights and obligations of the parties under that contract. And then it says, There is no occasion to seek to determine the character of the parties' relationship by a wide-ranging review of the entire history of the parties' dealings. Such a review is neither necessary nor appropriate, because the task of the court is to enforce the party's rights and obligations, not to form a view as to what a fair adjustment of the party's rights might require. So that's a very, I don't know, neoliberal sort of analysis on one view, isn't it? Like a pure contract approach. But it is tied to these definitions in the legislation, which talk about an employee being a person that meets the common law test. That's the Fair Work Act? Yeah, the Fair Work Act, yeah. Right. And I think it was relevantly the same in respect to the Long Service Leave Act and so forth. Mm. So 
maybe the appropriate response to this from the point of view of the concerns we've raised is legislative amendment. Oh, I was about to suggest. Yeah. Great idea. Yeah, because this will bite, I think. Dragon Morrison will go for that? No. <laughs> no. Um, Not on his agenda? Well, I mean, you say that, except that, on the other hand, there's going to be enormous liabilities that will now arise as a result of this judgment, won't there? So that, as in, so going forward, it might be very helpful from mm. that perspective, but looking backwards, it may be very different. So I think the CFMEU case is obviously going to mean that there's a whole bunch of labour hire workers in the construction industry that should have been employees because they're in relevantly similar arrangements. But on the other side of the equation, turning then to to the second case, um, ZG operation. So as I said, that was truck drivers who'd been working essentially for this company for a long time. And these same principles were applied. The cases were argued together. And on this analysis, looking at the contract terms, the High Court said that they were independent contractors. And that proceeded by reference to the fact they'd formed partnerships, the way they invoiced, all sorts of different things came into it. But they were held not to be employees properly. So it was sort of 50-50 in a sense. Yeah, but moving forward, I think it's just it will lead to very detailed and prescriptive employment contracts or non-employment contracts Mm. that you just have to be a bit cynical and think might proceed at variance to the reality of what's actually going on. Remember we did that episode quite a long time ago about when you're on a web page and you kind of click, yes, I agree, just to kind of get through to the next stage and it's the, you know, terms and conditions of agreement. Contra preferentem. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a Hell bit yeah. like that, this, isn't it, in a It way? is a little the bit like that. The courts wouldn't see it that way, but it is for like some pommy backpacker on a construction site and who spent 100 bucks on getting his outfit and out. signs a bit of paper. I mean, it's pretty, yeah. I imagine, not that. And and these big companies that are just dishing out, say, you know, like 10,000 pro forma contracts Mm. that they choose the terms of and Mm. the the people Mm. entering into them don't really have any say about any of the particular terms. Mm. Yeah. Well, if that happens, uh, I would assume that the courts would, you know, if there's a dispute, weigh in favour of the terms being unfair against a certain party and then rule it out. No, well, no, I don't think that any relevant, like, unconscionability or whatever is going to arise from a classic employment contract being struck by a party who's potentially ignorant and unrepresented. I think it's just that happens all the time. Okay. Contracts are struck in that way. Um, I guess you're free to, to if, if your contract doesn't say you will do as you're told, you're free not to do as you're told. Mm, that's and right, they, yeah. If they try and renege on your contract as a result of that, you might have sued. But that's a whole other kettle of fish. Okay, welcome back to the wigs. We are talking about uh, some really juicy, juicy law now. We're getting into the juicy end. Are of we like the Medellin cartel? Oh uh, yeah, that yeah, that's thing? what I'm talking about. That's what most people think of when they think about criminal cartels. I would have thought sort of international drug dealing syndicates, Medellin mafia but- operations, and that kind of thing. That's not what we're talking. Ah, about. okay, I'm my sorry. mistake. Okay, I'm sorry. Take it all um, back. 
we're talking about a cartel under the Competition and Consumer Act 2020. Fascinating piece of legislation. The best traditions of the Commonwealth drafter are shown there, which I'll come to in a minute. But look, what this is about is there was a case brought against some banks and some individuals, uh, and that was recently dropped. Um, to give you a sort of a short summary of what this is about, it's pretty complicated, but, um, and this comes from the first federal court judgment on this. Uh, in 2015, ANZ Bank um, tried to sell some shares or did sell some shares. It employed some merchant banks, some institutional banks uh, to sell those shares and they had an ordinary agreement in those circumstances that when the merchant banks go to sell shares, if there's leftovers, then the banks that are selling them hang on to those shares and have to deal with them in a certain way. Anyway, they weren't able to sell all of the shares and essentially what was alleged was that a few of these banks um, who were meant to be competing against each other about the sale of the shares uh, allegedly cut a deal um, to avoid flooding the market with these shares to keep the price up of these shares, right? Now, that is a super simple yeah, yeah, description yeah. of what happened, but that's the long and short Because of it. if they all flooded at the same time, They'd be worth nothing, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you might think a responsible course for banks to take is to not let the shares of ANZ drop down to zero, um, but that doesn't seem to have factored into the CDPPs or the ACCC's decision-making in charge okay. of this. Okay. Anyway, so this is the sort of conduct that was alleged. Um, later in 2015, one of the banks, JP Morgan, um, took some legal advice and approached the ACCC and got itself what they call a marker. So what's a marker? Basically, if you think you might have been part of a cartel... Okay. Right? You're going, you're going to go define what a cartel is I, now. <laughs> well, I will. So the idea is this, right? You, If you and I are in competition, or if the four of us are in competition with each other, and we cut a deal to set a price, right... Um, above what it might otherwise be, that is an example of what a cartel is. Gotcha. Right? The idea is you're harming people by making the price higher than it is. Okay. Right? Again, super simple example of what is a really complicated definition, which I'll come to, right? But it's a conspiracy. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, in one sense, it's like, it, yeah. It's, Insider it's, trading. It's that, it's got that vibe about it, right? Sure, like, sure, sure, sure. We're setting the price. If, if there was competition, competition is good. If there was competition in the market, the price would be lower. Punters would get a better deal. We're stopping the punters from getting a better deal by, as you say, conspiring with each other. That That's the sort of flavour of it, right? Okay. So if you think you might have accidentally done this or done this by virtue of your employees, you can rock up to the ACCC and say... Australian- I Australian... The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. Good yes. One. Fabulous. Um, and say... Listen, uh, we think we've done this, or we have done this. We want immunity from prosecution, and um, with conditions, or you know, we think just, we've done this. We just want immunity. Culper, just, just yeah. give us a free. So pass. give it, give us a marker. So we're the first in, right? You oh, get this gotcha. first in, best dressed. Oh, I see. Right? I see. So, so there's a race. So. 
So Jim, we, Jim rushes off to the ACCC and says, I've been in a cartel, I think, with Manny, Felicity and Stephen, but give me immunity and yeah, I'll die on them. I'm the mm. first one. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's not the ordinary sort of immunity that you might get in a criminal matter where... So if you, if you stab someone um, or if you're involved in a stabbing, odds are you're not going to get full immunity for that, right? There are exceptional cases where people get full immunity, but generally speaking, you'll get a good deal on your charges and you'll get what's called a letter of comfort and you might get 50% off your sentence, mm. but you don't get full immunity. Um, and that's well established in, in the criminal law and the CDPs, CDPP's own guidelines have talk about that kind of thing. Happens, but it's sort of very unusual. It's very unusual. The attorney's right? got to sign it off at the state level. Yeah, and, and as Dean Jordan SC, who was one of the counsel in the matter, said after this thing was dropped, was that the immunity regime creates what might be described as a commercial imperative to be first in the door and well before any considered investigation and any assessment as to whether any wrongdoing occurred. Mm. So because it's first in best dressed, your bank, you're worried about having committed a cartel, engaged in cartel conduct, you rush off to the regulator and go, here we go, we did this, because you walk away. Mm -hmm. With full immunity, and it doesn't matter if you didn't engage in the conduct anyway because you're first in, you get the full immunity. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that suits your commercial interests, um, it might not suit the perspective of the individuals who are the people through whom you're acting who are, and who are giving evidence. Um, and that was one of the issues in this matter, which I'll come to. So anyway. So uh, JP Morgan rushes off to the ACCC. Yes. They, they make, get in first. They get in first. They get their marker. Um, there is an investigation that's conducted. Um, and effect, I don't know how long that investigation went for, maybe a couple of years. Uh, but several banks and individuals, so actual individuals, were charged with effectively cartel conduct, and I'll come to what that is in a minute. And so there's this committal with about eight defendants, three of whom were banks, I think, um, and several individuals. And, it, I mean, to understand how these things... The committal was incredibly unusual, it took about a couple of years. Um, it's at one stage there was a week of witness examinations in Penrith local court. Mm. So why was it in Penrith? Well, because there was nowhere else to house it. It was oh, COVID. Okay. Yeah. You had the, you had essentially most of the top criminal silts in New South Wales, five or six of them. Um, two of the best criminal silts out of Melbourne, dialing in over video link. You had some of the biggest law firms in the country instructing them um, all out in Penrith local court <laughs> doing five days of cross-examination. Wow. Witnesses, right? It's hectic. And I can't, like, there's so much that happened in the course of this that to go through it would take too long. But the procedural history in terms of all the different interlocutory applications yeah, and the, amounts of things. That's yeah. right. And there's all, in the background of this, there's all this material that's been given to the ACCC is that legal professional privilege? Does that covered by LPP legal professional privilege? Is it not? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Everyone's lawyered up the wazoo, um, and I think the best description, and this is a quote from Thangaraj SC, who this is quote I think from the uh, the AFR. I think the best description of the of the committal proceedings or, or the import of the committal proceedings comes from Thangaraj SC, who's quoted in one of the papers as saying. 
Over the course of the committal, we have been through many, many deliberate removals of exculpatory evidence. So what emerged in the course of the committal was that there had been removals from the statements of these people. Wow. Of material that was exculpatory. So they created draft statements and then... There'd been this long process of statement taking and, I mean, ultimately none of this was resolved because there wasn't a trial, but many of the ACCC investigators didn't give statements at all. Um, There was LPP asserted over a lot of this material by various agencies. Um, And this is, again, this is a quote from a newspaper. Thangaraj is said to have said, the investment banks had been forced to explore these issues in the extensive pre-committal and pre-trial hearings because of the absence of any substantive statements from ACCC officers. Any substantive statements. Um, The absence of proper note-taking and the absence of proper disclosure. So they held a lot of what we call basher inquiries where you don't have a statement from a witness, you're on the doorstep of a trial, there are all these witnesses that the prosecutor proposes to call, you don't know what they're going to say because you don't have any written account from them, any pre-warning about what they're going to say, which is the standard practice. So before the trial starts and in the absence of any jury that might be hearing it... Voir dire, dire? It's called a basher inquiry. So a voir dire is a bit different. It's a hearing within a hearing to to determine admissibility of evidence. Okay. This is just so basically the parties and particularly the accused has warning of what a witness is going to say. Okay. So they basically get asked a whole lot of questions Mm. that aren't actually admitted into evidence in the trial proper Mm. in lieu of getting a statement from them. And sometimes you have a basher inquiry when you already do have a statement from a witness where the statement, for example, just doesn't address some looming topic that's really significant and the accused should be entitled or and perhaps the Crown might make an application as well to have a basher inquiry to find out, well, what are they going to say when they're asked this question? Mm. So to one of the questions asked by Thangaraj in one of the basher inquiries in the federal court, so not only was there all this evidence taken in the local court in the course of the committal, they then had additional basher inquiries. And one of the questions Thangaraj asked as to one of the witnesses, as the lead investigator on Operation Deacon, why did you not have a formal process in place to properly record exculpatory deletions from draft statements. Imagine, I mean, the, the mere fact that he's asking that question and the response from the former ACCC and who was apparently a federal police officer before that um, was that there was such a process in place during the formal review stage of finalising the statements, right? Um, and, I mean... Astonishingly, one of, this is another question from Thangaraj. He said, you'd have up to three or four ACCC officers other than the typist in every single interview. And by coincidence, every single one of them chose not to make a single note of substance in their official notebook in any interview. Right? What's the purpose of them being in the room? It's astonishing stuff, right? Anyway. I mean, fortunately... Um, it, 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 presumably, it's so that this process can continue beyond 
this scenario. You can come to the ACCC, be the first in. What? Like, is, is that is that too obvious? Like, I mean, one of the party's cases. We'll was, give you a marker. Yeah, well, they were deliberate removals of extrapolary evidence. That's what was put. Obviously, the ACCC denied that. Uh, but that's what was put. And you come in, you get your marker. You've got to think about it, right? Like, you come in and if you actually don't think you've done something, you, the individual, don't think you've done something wrong, but the corporation's gone, look, we've cut you this immunity deal, you better get in on it, then you might be well, you might well find yourself saying all manner of things that don't assist the ACCC in its case. And so what was being and, suggested... you cooperate with them because you want to come under the terms of the immunity, yeah. which requires you... You get a conditional immunity first and then that requires you to provide a statement and agree to give, give evidence and so on. So you kind of participate with the process, but you're you're honest, which then doesn't help the ACCC if, if what happens to be the case is that the conduct actually wasn't unlawful. So, I mean... Is that the... That's, that's the gist of it, the, right? Yeah, and And... and, yeah. and you're then the, the defendants or the accused are then presented with the statement, but none of what's happened in the background. And you've got to go looking for that. You've got to issue subpoenas. You've got to ask questions and so on. And so, I mean, presumably in light of this, the ACCC has, has made sure that this kind of thing will never happen again, you hope. But, you know, I, I mean, this is new ground, I think, for the, for the ACCC in the sense that they are facing the criminal the criminal microscope rather than the civil microscope where we don't you know for lack of a better we don't mess around with this kind of stuff mm. you've got to do it properly and maybe that's why their systems weren't in place who knows but look so what are we talking about what are these offenses this cartel conduct right section six section 45 i think af of the of the competition and consumer act says this, a corporation commits an offence if the corporation makes a contract or arrangement or arrives at an understanding and the contract arrangement or understanding contains a cartel provision. Great. Makes sense to me. Hang on. Commits an offence? Yeah. And then wonderfully, God bless them, the drafter puts in note, Chapter 2 of the Criminal Code sets out the general principles of criminal responsibility. <laughs> oh, okay, right. Sure does. Uh, and then it sets a fault element and then um, it sets out the formulation of the calculation of penalties and makes them indictable offences. Crucially, Commonwealth charges, indictable offences are tried in front of juries by virtue of the Constitution. Right. So, anyway, there's, and there's another section for giving effect to a cartel provision individuals who aid, abet, counsel, procure a corporation to commit an offence or are knowingly concerned in it or conspire in it, or etc., etc., are, by virtue of another section, guilty of an offence that carries 10 years imprisonment. Hmm. And presumably you're always going to have individuals behind any corporation's conduct. Well, that's right. So, yeah. you know, corporation might do something, but there are going to be some humans involved too. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... Commonplace in other... Well, it's the executive, right? I don't know. Do, in, in, do you go well, up the chain? And, and there's deeming provisions and so on. But there are. it's not uncommon for individuals and corporations to be charged, and this is not necessarily in this field, but generally, and then the corporation to cut a deal and the individuals fall away. So that, mm. that's, not a, that's not an uncommon occurrence. Nor is it necessarily, I say, 
of itself bad that a, that individuals can be found guilty of this conduct. But in the, in the circumstances of this case and these provisions, you've got to start wondering. Well, it can sometimes be a bit gross the way that, say, a corporation and an individual are charged with something and then they cut a deal where the prosecuting agency ends up deciding let's just go against the corporation and not the individual as part of a sort of plea deal or kind of overall um, wrapping up of the case in circumstances where some of these companies must factor into their bottom line having to cop some fines for failing to comply with regulation. Yeah, I think it, I think it commonly happens in what you might describe as closely held corporations. So where the practical reality is that there's a family or 30 shareholders who are going to suffer because of the fine imposed on the corporation. Mm. It's, it's when you start getting... The director's in, the sole director, he's yeah, the dad, that's right. he's running the family that's business, right. etc. Yeah. But, yeah. It does, I mean, it starts to get interesting when you get into the listed companies and so on, right? Mm. And so, corporations can't be sent to jail. That's right. But also, importantly, corporations often have compliance departments that individuals within them rely upon so that on on one view in certain circumstances you might say uh, unless there's sort of a gratuitous act of criminality if what you're doing is in the course of your business and your compliance department is telling you what you're doing is okay mm. the individual really has fair grounds to say well i mm. thought what i was doing okay because they would have told me if i wasn't Mm-mm. so what's the essence of the conduct here we're talking about well who knows this is that this is that this is the next point so but like the essence of the criminal offence yeah this yeah, is this is this is this is where your aspect. mind gets blown right so there's this section that says uh, for the purposes of this act a provision of a contract arrangement or understanding is a cartel provision if right and then it's not that classical Commonwealth drafting style where it's like either of the following conditions is satisfied in relation to the provision, the purpose and effect of the condition as set out in subsection two, uh, and the competition condition, blah, blah, blah. So it's that kind of formulation that refers you to three other sections. Yeah, yeah. And then those sections just get super bizarre and ridiculous. They, uh, they have within them... Um, you know, extensions of definitions, contractions, extensions of operations, circumstances, and otherwise. But the long and short of it is it's cutting a deal that limits the price or the supply of something in some way. So you kind of are in cahoots with other people in the same business all agreeing to charge no less than for yeah. a particular product. Right. That, that's Whereas the, the market might example. have set it lower. Yeah, but you've all agreed to fix it. Yeah, yeah. and you're in competition. Or withhold with each other. toilet paper during the pandemic, and then make you know, more money later or something. Then you know that drives up yeah, demand, yeah. and then. But it's the deal that's the. It's not. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, agreeing yeah. with a, a competitor yeah. to say, okay, yeah. let's. Yeah. Right. And you have to be in competition. So you have that. That's the other aspect. You can't. You know. And there's a syndicate defence. There's you know you can work. There's all manner of things. It's so complicated. It's For those of you who are familiar with the terrorist laws in the criminal code, this is orders, without hyperbole, orders of magnitude more complicated than the terrorist provisions. And um, they're confusing. And they are unbelievably confusing. So to give you an idea of just how confusing these are, the CDBP charged the Alleged accused, defenders. the accused, the defendants at that stage, the accused, well, the ACCC charge, and CDPP takes it over. They charge, CDPP signs a charge certificate 
gets to the federal court a couple of years later after committal, and then in July 2021, there's a judgment against them that by Justice Whitney that found the indictment sorely lacking, right, in particulars. And then, so July, in November 21, they had another go at the indictment, having sent back and forward copies of indictments, done all this stuff, and they were still hadn't got the indictment right, right? Um, it, it, Justice Whitney found the history of the proceedings does little to instill confidence in the respect of the ongoing prosecution of the proceedings. The charges, this, charges as filed in the local court contain virtually no particulars of the alleged offending conduct uh, beyond dates and the words used in the offending provisions. Um, there was a whole bunch of correspondence that happened, uh, and they didn't resolve the particularization of charges at the committal stage. They get to the fed, federal court. It's been years already. And we're not just talking about corporations' charges. There are individuals whose lives are in the balance for years, and they want an extension mm-hmm. of time. They get the extension of time, and they quote, they filed one that was, quote, almost entirely bereft of particulars, even after that extension of time. Um, and anyway, I mean, to, 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 to go on... It, there's so many things, but the highlights from Whitney's second judgment on the indictment include this. It would not be unfair to characterise the situation concerning the state of the indictment as a complete schmozzle. As a direct quote. <laughs> I hope quote. that made it into the... It uh, did make it into the catchwords. Catchwords. <laughs> it did. Schmozzle. Right. Uh, well over three years after and six months before the trial... Six months, three years after the charge and six months before the trial was listed, it was a complete schmozzle. Uh, and this, those responsible for drafting the cartel offence provisions in the CNC Act, none of whom could possibly have ever set foot in a criminal trial court before, hmm. appear to have approached the drafting task as if it were akin to producing a cryptic crossword. This is in the judgment, <laughs> right? The offence provisions, when read with the extensive definitions of the terms used in them, are prolates convoluted and labyrinthine when coupled with the general principles of criminal responsibility including the extensions of criminal responsibility in chapter 2 of the code the complexity of the offences is multiplied Um, essentially once you've worked through that maze his honour said you don't know what is what 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 is they're intending to bring to account and punish right um so what was the cause for Whitney to be saying all this? Was this striking down the indictment or something? So they they put, they get they, they they get to the federal court and the the accused put on a application that to strike the indictment out in effect, whatever the federal court language is about that, um, and to get rid of the matter. And Justice Whitney says no, gives them another chance, and they take that other chance. And it got I think it's something like this. They're they're so bad at it, and it's so hard to do. That the CDPP is negoci- is like kind of negotiating with the party, sending them copies of the indictment, getting feedback, and on the eve of the second argument about the indictment, they send through a further marked up version to the court. They just couldn't get it down. That's so that that's the occasion for his honour to say those. And Wigney says, look, okay, you've got problems with your indictment. Well, if it goes to trial, the prosecutor's going to have to explain this case to a jury in comprehensible terms. Mm. Yeah. The starting point in that regard is the indictment. If the prosecutor cannot articulate the prosecution case against the accused in clear and comprehensible terms in the indictment, it's difficult to see how the prosecutor will be able to explain the case to a jury. How how's, How are they going to understand? Mm. Yeah. And so... And, I mean, one of the interesting things about these cases are 
is that it, it's the, the field is so complicated that you end up with council teams that look like commercial law or competition law silk and competition law junior and criminal law silk and criminal law junior and they divide up between them the work because it's basically that hard to understand what the hell the CNC Act's talking about. So anyway, they, they eventually get an indictment and they're met with a demur application. A demur application is basically something where you say, the accused say, look, what you've described in this indictment isn't actually an offence. So that's about to happen and they drop the case, right, against everybody. So they just issue a file nolly prosecution yeah, against everyone. Yeah, that's it. We're, we're, we're not going to prosecute this. Now, I've read some estimates that suggest that the CDPP spent $30 million prosecuting this matter. I don't know what the budget of the ALS is in New South Wales. Hmm. It's about half that, I think. Is it? I mean, yeah, maybe thirty. Yeah, when I when we were there, it was sixteen or seventeen million, wasn't it? Hmm. The the feds could definitely have splashed some cash the, in the ALS direction instead of wasting its time with this one case that they didn't even prosecute. And now, I just described to you what the council teams look like for those defending this. Mm. You're talking about banks who care a lot about their reputation. I don't know how much was spent, but you can easily imagine it going well over a hundred. $150 million of defence cost to get it to that point oh, where it was huge. at. Huge. Right? Well, I mean, this, it's a lot of work. This was occupying years of council time and and solicitor time. And, and I don't so know, many defendants. And so many defendants, right? So you multiply all that out. Let's call it conservatively this matter cost $100 million. And I don't know whether there'll be a cost application. There's complications for costs in crime. I don't know. But whoever winds up paying for it... Insofar as banks have had to splash this money out to defend themselves, where's that money coming from other than the community ultimately? Mm. Mm. It's a bit ironic, isn't it, given the whole point of the legislation? For what? For conduct that was alleged of like not making ANZ shares drop to zero because that might not be a bad idea. And in the backdrop, like it's hard. It, I understand that people might find it difficult to be sympathetic to banks defending themselves, but there are people who are involved, allegedly involved in these things, who were charged with these things, who've had their life put on hold for five years, more sometimes. JP Morgan went to the ACCC in 2015, yeah. so that's maybe seven. Well, they were clean, though. They got their... No, I know, yeah, but, but that, yeah. that was the start right. of the process, right? So you By know them that going this thing's and going on. The immunity. And these are, these are presumably skilled professional people. But, you know, I mean, even leaving that aside, I don't care whether you're, you're a skilled professional or some punter, you know, the end of the day, that is an enormous impost on an innocent person's life that went on for what? For, for, I mean, I do a little bit of this kind of work. I have some understanding of what this sort of stuff's about. But this should be nowhere near criminal courts. So this, this, this case had to go through the New South Wales process of early and appropriate guilty yeah. plea regime. Yeah. Which is meant to be a regime, first of all, to try to achieve early and appropriate guilty pleas, but also on the flip side, I understood part of the policy background was to try to weed out cases that should never even land in yeah. a trial court. 
in other words, someone should give proper attention to a case, someone of sufficient seniority should give proper attention to the case on the prosecution side to work out, well, should we be certifying this charge? You know, what what should the charge be? Should there be any charge? It's, yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. It takes so long for this to be sorted out. Well, somebody signed a charge certificate. I don't know who it is. And they, they signed a charge certificate and then needed two other federal court judgments to tell them that their indictment didn't work. It's, I mean, the AGP stream is, in my view, broken for that reason. There is no penalty imposed on a prosecutor for failing to weed out cases and for not engaging in the charge certification process mm. appropriately. Mm. There's a punishment for the accused. There's punishment for the Definitely. accused, but nothing yeah. on the Crown. And... You know, this is should especially, be a offence with them. And I mean, well, the, especially given the costs provisions, don't yeah. you know? It, it's not like costs follow the event in criminal matters. Mm. It's the innocence tax for, for the accused. I mean, yeah. And I mean, look, there has been some, the ACCC had a bit of success some time, a few years ago with a shipping cartel series of cases, corporations pleading guilty. But they've had a bad... The last 12 months have been pretty bad. They had a spectacular failure in a matter called country care, um, which I won't labour you with the details with, but there was a the first criminal jury trial, as I understand it, run in the federal court. was an absolute debacle, and the accused were rightly commit, uh, acquitted. Um, and here they couldn't get this one off the, off the mat. Now, I don't want to be too critical of the ACCC, in a sense, because... They're administering, and the CDPP, because they're administering this legislation that is so convoluted that, I mean, Justice Whitney of a federal court justice saying these people have never seen the inside of a criminal courtroom. Um, the drafters. Yeah. The, drafters <laughs> the drafters, sorry. The dra- yeah, so the drafters haven't. Mm. And, and, and so the CDPP and the ACCC is lumbered with having to deal with this legislation. But at the end of the day, it's hard to know what the criminality was that they were chasing. Um, and... Why all of this stuff can't be just dealt with civil with civil penalty provisions against corporations? Um, and if there's the classical things, which nobody was suggesting here, a fraud or theft or anything like that, well, that's the that's the criminal stuff, you know. Um, anyway, fortunately, I suppose eventually they know build it and life will go on. But you know, five years under a cloud like this, life is never the same. Fun Things. Welcome back to the Wigs. It's time for that great segment called Fun Things. And uh, in no particular order... I want to ask you yes, what the hearsay ahead. rule is. The, oh, yeah, okay, great. Thank you for putting me <laughs> to the test. The hearsay rule is essentially the rule against putting something uh, under cross-examination that someone has heard because it can't be cross-examined. It's a rule against. Fail. Fail. <laughs> You bastards. Okay, let's all try and state the rule because it's actually quite hard to do. No, no, no. Let me state it again. Let me, give, me another, give me another shot. Give me another shot. But, you know, I'm going to do it in Don't jan- focus on cross-examination. Yes, okay. All right. Well, I was put on the spot. I'm trying to multitask. <laughs> it's, a hard, it's the hardest evidence question there is. That's why I asked it. If in a situation, yeah. okay, somebody hears something or, or, or doesn't witness an act, okay, and they are asked about 
that act. It's more about representations rather than acts. No, I think he's getting there. He's getting okay. there. Okay. No, no, you're getting there. Keep going. That person is not allowed to, to admit in evidence, adduce evidence yeah. that that is a fact when when it's there, when it's like almost it's like it's opinion. Because <laughs> no, no, no. I give him, I give him solid four out of ten. Oh, that is far. Um, evidence of a previous representation yes. is not admissible to prove that but, which the representation asserts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? The, the existence of a fact. Give us an example. Okay. All right. So there's a. Okay. Let's talk about it. Um, so. Here we go. <laughs> this is mean. I'm oh, sorry. I, I didn't mean this to go this far. No, there was a situation where um, a victim was assaulted, and just before they passed, due to the injuries of their assault, they went and gave a sworn statement at a police station mm. uh, that was admitted into evidence. It was adduced, mm. and the defenders tried to strike it out as because it was hearsay, but it was allowed under Section 63 or something because. And I got to check the sections because the victim was a, was was able to ascertain that it was legal to uh, so that that it was a legal statement. The consequences of them uh, in breach if they were lying under 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 whatever and fucking whatever. Anyway, sorry, long and the short of it is, <laughs> are we at a, oh. it was an exception to the hearsay rule. I reckon the easiest way to think about the hearsay rule, it's basically anything that was said outside the court. Yes. And that could include yes. like non-verbal yes, statements. Yes, yes, yes. That someone is trying to lead in the court case for the truth of what the statement yeah. was. But there are exceptions. There and this are was, exceptions. This was an exception. So it's super the key aspect yeah, the, of it. The yeah. key aspect of the definition is that it's being led to prove the, the uh, truth of it. Exactly. Yeah. So I can say uh, Joe told me he was getting a haircut if the fact that Joe told me he was getting a haircut is relevant. Hmm. But uh, you can't then, subject to the exceptions, use that as to proof prove the existence that Joe of a was fact. having a haircut. Mm. Yeah, and there's, there's yeah. another case where um, the cleaners <laughs> came to a crime scene and the television was turned up and they wanted to ask the um, the uh, Suspect, you know, uh, was the television turned up, but not to prove the existence of the fact that the television was turned up, but to prove the state of mind that they were an unreliable witness. Yes. So it was an exception. It was hearsay. It's under the hearsay lecture, but really it's an exception. Okay, let's move on. Felicity Graham, please, what's your fun thing? <laughs> that was fun, wasn't it? Oh, you bastards. I'm very sorry about Far that. I didn't out. mean that to go that long. But, oh, man. Look, students listen to us. They can, you know. We should do more of this. Yeah, no, we don't. We should do a whole session on this your uni course, This is very fun Jim. for us. Yeah. Oh, Not God. so fun Next for week, Jim. Jim will be talking about jurisdictional error. You'll I just <laughs> Well, that's post my exam, so that's fine. Let's do it. Oh, my God. Okay, Jim, Jim, I'll save you. I'll move on to my fun Thank thing. Thank you. I have started Ocean swimming. Whoa. Swimming. And the other day I was swimming from the past to the Byron Bay Surf Club. From where? Here? No, <laughs> up there. Okay, nice. And I saw a, a baby ray about the size of a dinner plate. It's beautiful. Don't say anything, Steve. That's fantastic, Felicity Graham. That's well done to you. I was just helping your fun thing by not being sabotaged by the man himself. Okay. My fun thing <laughs> He's fixing your microphone. <laughs> Go. My fun thing is I did three days last week with David Hook SC. Oh, yeah. A very good silk in the high court. And he took us out for an amazing lunch 
last Friday <laughs> at Botswana Butcher. Did you just go really through your cool. calendar then? Much more fun than the case itself. All right. Manny Kirksharian. <laughs> the What's case fun thing? was quite fun, though. The case was fun. What about the, the really great compliment that was paid to Hooky? Yeah, that was quite funny, actually. So... One of the other juniors in the case took one of the points or one of the grounds um, and spoke to it orally and he spoke after Hook and we're all appearing on AVL, so his name was still under there. And Justice Gordon um, said, oh, yes, Mr Hook, or asked him a question and called him Mr Hook. Um, And Sebastian said, oh, excuse me, Your Honour, I'm not Mr Hook, though... I do aspire to be him nice. in some respects. In some respects. <laughs> in some respects. <laughs> and I got a lot of movement on Twitter. That's basically nice. an epic sledge. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Matty Kirkusharian, what's your fun thing? I'm here in the opera tonight. Oh, what's going on? What's on the menu? Uh, I'll tell you. Um, be nice. I've become an opera fan. Good for you. Yeah. I think you, we, we got to hurry up because you've got three minutes to fled. I'm done. My fun thing is I am going to do some uh, exam preparations tonight. Thanks to you, Mr. Manny Kikasharian. Thanks a lot. Thanks for making me feel so prepared. Yeah. Thank you, should. And I'm yeah. glad yeah. you're not the master. It's a idea that you might oh revise, maybe. PSA, particularly, mate. Yeah. And Section 59. <laughs> all right. Here we go. Two fingers up for you guys. Thank you, audience. And Someone's going to write in and tell us how wrong we were. As well. yeah, we yeah, encourage yeah. to write to Jim to tell him. Don't that. turn around to me because I won't read it. Thanks very much. <laughs> we'll see you next month. We're going to do that every Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.